Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to Screen Talk, New Wire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, joined as always by Ann Thompson, and we are getting through the first work week of the year, and there is no rest for the weary. Just when we decided we were happy to jump back into things, I got back from being away for a while, anticipating Sundance, wrote a story about how Sundance seemed to be plowing ahead, and then 24 hours later, Sundance canceled its physical edition very sadly for the second year in a row, and it's a Bummer, but what can I say? We've been here before, right? We know what to do. And virtual Sundance was not a total bust. It was wonderful. I remember really enjoying it. And I'm prepared to settle back into my living room with some relief, to tell you the truth. Because as your story detailed, um, I mean, don't get us wrong. We are very supportive of the Sundance Film Festival. But the prospect of going out, um, you know, dealing with idiosyncratic flight schedules, potential cancellations, uh, weather, um, the the question of getting sick and being stranded somewhere, um, the likelihood that you would get sick <laughs> under these circumstances, you know, as much as we right. wanted it to happen, we we kind of knew that it wasn't going to. And I think most people in the industry who I reached out to kind of said that. I mean, a lot of people when I when I talked to them, they said, "Well, has anybody actually said to you, yeah, I'm really excited?" And the truth is, n- not really. Not all. Not nobody was really like, "Yeah, I'm all in. Let's do it." But a lot of people were like, well, I guess I'm going to go. Or they said, I had COVID over the holidays, so I'll probably. <laughs> I guess I'm fine. <laughs> the more you talk to me, you realize it was sort of like, well, nobody was really talking about it the way that they needed to because they didn't want to have that conversation. And of course, there was this unfortunate uh, kind of challenge for Sundance in the sense that you couldn't rely on local government to cancel it because Utah banned vaccine mandates, that's not a place that's going to tell you not to have an event. Yeah, but on that front, you also recognize that the, the folks uh, on the ground in Utah may not be wearing their masks or, or may anything. not be vaccinated yeah. at all, right? And, and, and Summit County is, is the COVID hotspot of Utah itself. So there's that. And then you have sponsors who really prefer to do in-person events. Let's talk about that. Uh, This is what I was going to ask you about, Eric, because you did a lot of on the ground reporting yourself on this. If you were to um, identify the powers that be that were pushing the Sundance Festival to keep going forward, what kept them from declaring um, the festival non-live so long? Why didn't they do it earlier? Well, I mean, I think my intel has has limits, but there's a lot that you can speculate about here. I mean, a new CEO started just a matter of weeks ago. Sundance was certainly prepared. Joanna Vicente from TIFF. Yeah, So, and and, and Sundance was obviously prepared to pivot in some fashion, but the the They were prepared. I can tell you from the interview I did with Tabitha Jackson at the time of the announcement that there were um, X number of plans in place for when each thing happened and they were prepared and flexible and knew that they would have to pivot to digital possibly. But I think to your to your question that it's, it's, it's a question kind of, of when 
I think who, who would be pushing forward. I mean, you have uh, some very specific areas in which uh, people wanted Sundance to go forward. I'm sure that without a widespread talent pulling out, you can't point to that. Without sponsors pulling out, you can't point to that. Without local pressure, you can't point to that. I would assume that, you know, Park City itself probably did want Sundance to take place because there was a lot of commercial interest in having uh, everything happen. And I think the sponsors were pushing hard. And I think that the distributors were pushing hard because they want to see those films in a live setting. It's in their interest. And, And publicists, I mean, I, I think as, as much as this sucks for a lot of different people in the industry, I think publicists are hit in, in a really hard way because it's very difficult to get these movies covered uh, when people aren't Everybody running. loses a certain amount of buzz when this happens. Yeah, There's it's no question. And you can't get people into, you know, a screening to make it this exclusive moment. And up until yesterday when the you know we're recording now on Thursday until the news came down on Wednesday up until that point there were still some films where publicists were saying we're going to try to make this an exclusive on the ground thing because of the windows that they had so they all the films in the Sundance Lounge were always going to be virtual but they were going to have up to 48 hour windows so there was going to be the opportunity for films to really have their on the ground Sundance They're moment. still going to have uh, an enormous amount of uh, numbers of eyeballs as, especially around the country too which is a great thing on the films in a window with a live Q&A afterwards you know there is that sense of of a premiere and with all the Twitter and and all the reviews breaking and and all of that so these films will get attention and if we can use some of the films that broke last year as examples of what's possible even in a digital universe obviously coda sold for 25 million to apple passing sold to netflix um, and is still in the conversation summer soul got a lot of attention is still in the conversation uh searchlight got that one um so you you have a a number of films that were established there especially in the doc uh side many of the shortlisted films and in the uh oscar race on the doc side came out at, at sundance yeah and in fact someone was telling me the other day it's possible that that coda deal might not even have gone down under traditional Sundance situation because it, it did, there was something about the the ease with which Apple could just sort of swoop in on that movie before say Searchlight or somebody else kind of interferes in the lobby or whatever. Actually in the story, I included a photo you took. I loved that. Well, my huddle, my Searchlight huddle. huddle. Outside Big Sick. I mean, that's like a real physical thing that can happen, right? We could all see who was talking to who and who was, you know, there's Nancy Utley listening to her team. I love it. Right. So, the, so, but it, it is hard. I mean, we'll talk about it more, I, I think, as we get. No, that's what I'm going to miss. The, uh, the, the, that moment, the Eccles, going to the Eccles with the big premiere, with the movie that all the distributors are sitting there waiting to see, that kind of palpable excitement and energy, and then that, the, uh, the aftermath of who's going to bid on what. That's really exciting, and we'll miss it. That I, I, of course, and I, and I assume, I mean, you know, all of these organizations are struggling to survive, but I assume it'll be back next year because what we're looking at with this pandemic seems to be moving in a positive direction and you cannot replace these events for all the reasons we've already outlined as live events. I think the live event is still gonna be a part of it, but I also think that there's real value in continuing to see these virtual festivals 
finding ways to create platforms for movies, I don't think that's going to go away even when the pandemic recedes, in part because a big aspect of film culture has migrated online. One of the things I did during my parental leave was I got into Letterboxd. Letterboxd fascinates me because it is a very vibrant, active community. I know Ehrlich is on there. Yeah. Oh, he's huge on there. I don't use it uh, for new movies so much. I use it to sort of keep tabs on, on older films that I'm watching. And, and, and I realize you can create a set sort of viewing log, you can create lists and stuff. I haven't gotten into it too deeply, but what, what's just really surprising to me is just how active people are in such, on such a specialized platform. Like, you know, you can go on IMDB reviews or whatever and post things about a movie, but on Letterboxd, they're much more precise. And, uh, and I think there's something really valuable about it's mostly a younger demographic of movie lovers. Think about those people who are going to be buying tickets to watch Sundance films in 50 states. You know, I think there's something really important about understanding how that audience is paying attention to cinema now. Well, one of the things that goes on on Letterboxd and what I think has been going on more, if I'm not mistaken, inside the film community during the pandemic is perhaps there is a whole new generation of people watching more classic films and subscribing oh, yeah. to Criterion and watching movies over again. I was listening to someone talk about this Um yeah, <laughs> there's a great um, actors roundtable on uh, the Hollywood Reporter website, and um, the the person who was talking about it was Nick Cage, who proved that he's a movie star. He was the movie star on this um, uh, oh, panel. He, I mean, his movies make a ton of money on VOD. That's been established. he gets it. He totally understands the whole thing. And one of the things he talked about was how important it was for people to go back and see movies over and over and over again. And sometimes movies aren't even as good as they need to be until you've seen them twice or three times. Of course, he's encouraging people to look at his movies. But uh, it, the other favorite quote of mine, I know this is a, a bit of a detour. My favorite quote of his um, on that thing was uh, doing his impersonation of Werner Herzog telling him to let the pig loose, <laughs> let the pig loose. Hey, that was a pretty good impersonation too. And <laughs> just having you do a podcast like that sometimes. You know, I think um, it, it's, it's fascinating to me, the, the classic film part of it, because uh, there are a lot of flaws with the kind of the nature of supporting classic film and streaming because of different rights and libraries. It's very fragmented. Where do you actually turn? But it is true that there has no, never been a generation with this much access to this much of film history. But the other thing that's great is if you're on Netflix, obviously they're no, they're no fools. They're promoting Jane Campion, right? And so they have other of her old movies on there, you know, uh, in order, and you can catch up with them. And the same is true on HBO Max, you know, for what, whenever they need to promote something current, they can promote the old stuff too. It's yeah, great. I mean, that would be one thing I would say with HBO Max, I wish they surfaced more of that Warner archive better because people do if you don't know that it's there it's huge there wonderful you have to look for it and then maybe it starts to display things for you but it, it you've got that you've got disney i mean the, the the films are out there it's just it can be hard sometimes to track them but to bring this back to sundance, sundance. There, yes there is a great package on the criterion channel now of the sundance 1992 films the other day I watched Gas Food Lodging, which you know, holds up. It's a really, really sweet movie. Alison and Anders. Also, yep. yeah, a great breakout story. That was an amazing year. And they have a really good Incredible. documentary about it. It's, you know, not just like kind of the obvious names of, you know, Linkletter Tarantino or whatever, but like the, the new queer cinema thing. They have the 
footage of the barbed wire kisses panel that B Ruby Rich hosted, a black documentary panel. It's just exciting to go back and look at that moment and realize, you know, that it was I was there. That <laughs> yeah, it is worth asking, you know, how significant did it feel at the time? Because I look back at that and you know, that was reading about the 90s Sundance was one of the things that made me really excited to go in the first place about it, you know, a decade and change later. In the 90s, Anne, was Sundance as cool as everyone said? <laughs> yeah, it was. I remember having snowball fights on Main Street with uh, Bingham Wright. But this is the picture of, of the, that could have been that year. I mean, that's me and Bingham Ray on Main Street in uh, me clutching a, a, a bunch of trades in my arms. I remember sitting at some screening with Paul Bartell on one side and Tim Hunter on the other and, you know, hanging out at the Holiday Cinema in the back row with with Bingham for hours. It was about yeah. discovery. It still is. Yeah. That's what's great about yeah. it. Well, I mean, and, and the, the reason why I pushed for, for that is because I do feel like there's value in that nostalgia because it's not just nostalgia. I mean, even when I started going to Sundance, which was in the in 2007 was my first year you still got that kind of experience. I did feel like it was this cozy opportunity to engage with an industry that is very niche, but felt like the biggest industry in the world while you were there. And that that's still valuable. Being able no, to for me, I mean, the moments that I really treasure are, you know, grabbing Todd Field on Main Street and pulling him into one of those restaurants and interviewing him, you know, for in the bedroom, you know, knowing that that was going to be a big deal, knowing, you know, that this was a major filmmaker for the for the ages. Now, whatever happened to him since then, we can discuss another. Well, I remember that. Yeah, it's funny because I remember <laughs> my first interview, I think, at Sundance may have been well, one of them was Brett Morgan. But it was all there early was um, Jim Strauss for Grace is Gone because wow. I, Harvey Weinstein had bought that movie overnight. So it was one of those big Sundance deals with uh, the at that point in time, it was still really exciting to hear about all these like heated negotiations late into the night. And of course, it was, it was that movie. You know, and everybody knew about what happened, to, you know, with Harvey, you know, yelling and, and getting up in the restaurant and everything. Well, yeah. Fisticuffs. You know, it's these are these are the stories, you know, that that went on. And and, and it was very um, intense, too. You know, you were really tracking these deals in real time. I remember hauling up in one of those hotels with with Dana, Dana Harris, who's our editor in chief now, she was at Variety then, and and we were teamed up uh, covering all this. I would be the one on the ground covering these trade stories too. Yeah, it's a, there's a rush to that kind of thing. So, and I and I assume we'll feel some of that. And so I, I hope that I hope that this is temporary. And and I guess the other question we now have is, you know, who else is going to be affected? All of the January film events were, were scuttled or postponed. Now we're looking right. at so February. now we're looking at at um, the you know the poor uh, beleaguered uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association on Sunday the ninth are Prime still year, making their announcement at the Beverly Hilton, trying to remind everybody that they're really a philanthropic organization giving grants to lots of uh, oh, people lie. who are deserving, which is true, which is true, and so they're going to have their grantees uh, give out the. Uh, the award, uh, you know, announce the awards. I like um, that they has, won't have any audience or any presenters or any. Snoop Dogg presents press. the uh, the nominees. I feel like that was a waste. If you if you can't get 
any other celebrity presenters just get Snoop Dogg to do everything. That's like, <laughs> get him to mispronounce every name. <laughs> Why not? He's a good excuse. No, but it's and, interesting because the press has been very muted uh, in their coverage of, of the Globes and IndyWire included. And so, you know, what does it mean if there's no live show, if there's no telecast, if there's no celebrities, you know, what, what, do, you know, does anyone care uh, what, what those nominations, you know, what those awards turn out okay. to be? Have to, I mean, to play devil's advocate, they have to do something in the hopes that after, as all this stuff settles, the brand will continue to have value, perhaps as some semblance of normalcy returns. And even if the HFPA is, is slightly more diverse now, they can still be. They added 21 part- members, more diverse. But what they did, which I feel, I still feel very strongly about was a mistake. There was this little window between you know all the announcements that they made and this um uh committee that's supposed to you know uh vet all the different uh, members and and they basically approved everybody who was already there for at least one more year giving them time to get their act together to get an outlet to get some clips to prove that they're still extant and if they can't do that they're gonna have to quit they're gonna or be let, let go from the organization and that's that was the little secret that they really didn't want uh to make much of is that so- they kept everybody and then so on top of all that, you had this whole question about the Critics' Choice, which was sort of jockeying to take that spot. Then the Globes trolled them by basically announcing their nominees at the same time. And then... Uh, Unfortunately, it was a live event, so they had to they had to postpone it. So it hasn't uh, been canceled. It's just been postponed. And they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. This was an opportunity they were trying to make uh, the most of. And unfortunately, uh, COVID uh, intervened. But it raises a question of, of will this continue to be a battle of yeah, will, it will. will they, they keep it will. I mean, the, the, the critics' choice are a much more, um, uh, I mean, respectable is the word I would use. I mean, they, they're real professionals um, and, and they often are predictive. Voters. Very predictive. Why? Say that again. We cast ballots. Is that why? We are voters. We're both voters, yes. Yeah. Remember. So that, that helps with in the credibility department. <laughs> we aren't in the HFPA. So no, we are not. Nobody asked, no, which not. is fine. Um, no, and then, and then the big one, the ones that really matter, honestly, are the guilds. And so the first of the big guilds, as usual, is the SAG Awards on Wednesday. They're going to announce their nominations. And the public, speak, I mean, I do, as, speaking of publicists, I do feel for them because they are not, they are making, I spoke to one of them who was telling me all the ways that they had to switch everything from live to to basically over the holidays, uh, switch everything from live to, to digital. And luckily, you're right. Everybody knows how, what to do. We know what to do. We, we, we are, uh, what did we do? We watched the 355, you know, on, on, on our, exactly. at home last night. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a pivot as well. But anyway, the, the, so they're, they're, the SAG awards are the ones that are important, that are going to actually tell us something about yeah. what will happen in the acting races. Who's going to get snubbed on this? one because it feels like there's a lot of people kind of jockeying for spots here there's some interesting cusp positions like does leo get into best actor or or uh you know, uh, and there's some people who haven't really been campaigning. Um, Leo and Denzel Washington and Will Smith uh, have been very quiet. 
Um, and I'm curious, I mean, we knew that Francis McDormand would be, this is the tragedy of Macbeth, which has also been very quiet. So we'll see what gets left out at the end. I'm starting to see more appreciation for that now that it's hit Apple. So I wonder if that may or Apple is quiet. It's very quiet. I mean, just the, like on they got there with CODA, though. You, you can assume that CODA is going to register, at least with the Oscars, if not the acting races. I bet Troy Kotzer gets in. Yeah, he's, the, he's sort of the popular favorite. You would have thought a year ago we'd be talking more about Marley Matlin, but it turns out kind of the breakout of sorts, which is kind of exactly. cool. Exactly. Charming character and stuff. And then you have all these ensembles. I mean, from Don't Look Up to West Side Story. Right. The movies where you don't think of one star, you think Or of Belfast or King Richard. I mean, these are all great ensembles. And I would right. think these are the titles that are gonna get in there. Does Nightmare Alley have a shot? Because Bradley Cooper is really good in that movie. In spite of whatever, whatever people think of the movie itself, you know, we talked about it earlier this week on the other episode. Uh, Cooper is really giving a strong performance. I mean, maybe one of his best. Yeah, but it's always a risk. I mean, it's interesting. Um, you've got Benedict Cumberbatch playing uh, a villain, if you like, in, in The Power of the Dog, but he isn't a villain. He's actually the protagonist, and you're actually um, very in engaged with him in a way that isn't necessary. It's almost like you're fascinated by him. How did he get this way? Why is he like this? What is his secret? What is going on, right? That yeah. is part of what's going on with Bradley Cooper too in Nightmare yeah. Alley, but you're not rooting for him. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what's what I liked about the movie. <laughs> but it's just that the last shot of that movie, not to spoil anything, is is like one of it's his It's brilliant. Great the ending is brilliant. But the but the other um, uh, Bradley Cooper performance is also good in Licorice Pizza, the supporting performance is John Peters. And I just don't think I don't think that's going to happen. Somehow. Yeah, well, Licorice Pizza is a, a good ensemble play. There's certainly a lot of performances running around in that movie. And I don't think we're going to see another actor who hasn't been doing any. any. There's certain people who are uh, basically uh, allergic to looking like they're campaigning. Like they'll do publicity for the opening of the movie, but they don't want to reveal their hand. They don't want to look needy. They don't want to look like they're going for it. So Adam Driver is one of those. And he has three movies this year. He's terrific in all three of them, House of Gucci, Annette, and uh, uh, The Last Duel. But he's, he's not going to get nominated for any of them. Well, I mean, if he wants to be too cool for school, as long as he's <laughs> doing good work, we can still be happy that he's out there in the world doing stuff. But that's There's just also a weird yeah. aspect of it where it's like he's... he's uh, there's He's overexposed. Like, we're, we're almost seeing too much of him. Sometimes I mean, a guy it's like better him, to keep the mystery. We forget sometimes that these people have been through the ringer with promotional campaigns and they know what they're like and they get traumatized by them sometimes. And don't forget when he doing marriage story and he walked out of an NPR interview because he didn't want to hear a recording of his own voice. You know, so he's obviously realized that this just doesn't work for him. He can't, no. he, tried, he tried on that. I respect one. him completely, it's perfectly fine. I think they, I think the, the, the machine pushes these people to do way too much. In, yeah. in fact, they're all probably relieved. They can stay in their living rooms again. <laughs> exactly. Well, relief is relative, I suppose. There are probably some people who are eager to get back out in the world and because of the performative nature of these things. But, uh, but it will be interesting to see how that sort of slants stuff for the second year in a row. And 
Um, I'm also curious about uh, the Spirit Awards. Have you heard anything about how all of this stuff could affect the the new timing? Well, the good the that? good the good news for the Oscars is that they must have uh, anticipated that there was the potential for a winter surge, and they pushed the Oscars back as late as March for a reason, and yeah. and it's a good thing. Uh, if the if the um, Omicron variant peaks in a couple of weeks, it'll go down again after that. Um, and the Oscars could be okay. And then the other, um, and the spirits are three weeks ahead of the Oscars, which, uh, but they're outdoors. I, I actually bet the spirits go on. They're well, in a tent. That's nice a good thing. Show to happen. I mean, it always, it, it's a nice wider array of movies. Given that we're missing Sundance and all the networking and socializing that we would have liked to do. I hope, I hope, I hope the spirits uh, bring our community together again. Yeah, I mean, also the nominees this year are some of the best they've had in terms of a contrast to the Oscars. As opposed yeah, to The Lost Daughter is really the only one uh, that, right. that is a real Oscar contender um, of the bunch. Uh, they're very they're very arcane this year. I, I did enjoy when I was out listening to the podcast you did with uh, our colleague Kate about the Gothams and you're like, well, Eric thinks that the Gothams are hugely influential for the Oscars. Nobody agrees with that. And I want to clarify that <laughs> I realize that I am not, not going to miss an opportunity. They're not changing. A <laughs> but it never hurts. If there's a possibility of something getting a bit of an elevation. It requires that someone's paying attention to it. Look, some of these Oscar folks on Twitter, uh, the people who cover it, you know, the pundits, they go out, they, they report dutifully every single little critics group and who they're voting for as if that's gonna have any impact on anything. It's not. New York does, LA does, national film critics maybe, in, in terms of influencing what people might put on their, uh, in, you know, into their, v, uh, onto their television to watch, you know, that's about it. I, I just feel like there's more of like an amorphous thing too, where it's just like, some of us end up advocating for things that we get excited about. Like, for example, with Drive My Car winning New York Film Critics Circle, you can't say that that doesn't at least help on some level. It does. It's going to make a lot of people see the movie they might not otherwise have seen, especially yeah. if it's followed up by L.A. doing the exact same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So so there, there are, it's a complex calculus. It's a, you can't put a fine. It's not, not, not it's a fine. It's influencing. Time. It's influencing the big, the big ones, the ones I mentioned. But I don't. Gotham's is not. <laughs> it just isn't because so few people are watching it. They don't care. Well, I was there. There were a lot of Academy members in the room, just for the record. So there's <laughs> that. There's value. It was a, it was a nice break from from my my leave to realize that there was still value to this event that that from LA might seem very tiny and irrelevant, but I, but I felt like had meaning. So, but in any case, let's talk about uh, the three five five because it's actually a, a new movie coming out this week. So, uh, serious lady power spy movie that Jessica Chastain rounded up with all these other. Uh, movie stars. Yeah, I remember when they announced it at Cannes, and 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 I know that that her company, uh, I think it's called Freckle Films, uh, actually produced it. So she's very much involved behind the the scenes, and you know that she's always looking for movies that are going to have a good uh, feminist slant to them and a, a sense of empowerment for the women. And that's certainly true, as these women all band up together uh, uh, to go after the big villain of the piece. I found it narratively thoroughly unremarkable but i but i enjoyed a lot of the action sequences and all of those actors 
are actors I generally appreciate from Penelope Cruz and Lupita Nyong'o. So I thought like, Diane Kruger was quite Diane good. Kruger, well, she always kicks ass. I mean, like it was she, she the the first showdown that Diane Kruger and Jessica Chastain have that starts in a market or it's yeah, that's a good one. Paris and then goes into the subway. I thought was really well directed. I think it's worth acknowledging that like Chastain's wearing a dress throughout that entire chase scene. That there are some very noticeable like wardrobe moments in the action scenes involving high heels and stuff that I don't know if we've seen. You know, you certainly haven't seen that in a Bourne movie. And so it leans into that side of things. And yeah, there's another great set piece where all the women are very glam and they go into to um, an auction and uh, that piece was well done. So Simon Kinberg uh, helped to write it and directed it. And I have never been, I'm, I'm a big fan of some of his screenplays and he was very involved with the X-Men franchise and did a lot of good work there. So I'm a fan of his to a degree, but I find his embrace of the um, very formulaic action genre uh, uh, mystifying. I think he's capable of more. This was a standard fare. Well, some people do things for this strange thing called money. I don't know. It's <laughs> motivating, including fact. these actresses. They want this to be a commercial venture. Clearly, that's I mean, what I, you're I, embracing. Certainly, it'll be. It's a movie that actually. I mean, I know that it's got a theatrical element to it, but it's. It definitely seems like it's very VOD friendly with those stars. That genre, you know, action generally does well in VOD anyway. So I do think it's going to have a good life, and and I, I'm glad they made it. I mean, I, from a representational standpoint, you know, it's it's kind of like you're watching and you're thinking like, why why didn't this happen sooner? But I'm glad that someone made a movie that was so, have, you know, just really leans into that because, it you know, they're all action stars in this movie and it works really well. Um, What's that not- franchise that they got all the old guys together, St- Stallone and everybody? They brought in, you know, and... and- yeah, really I always wanted the woman. Uh, they were going to do one with women and they never, never did. Right. And right. they thought the old people, if they were women, would be like 40. That's oh, what pissed me off. That is so annoying. But, I, you know, someone should still make that movie. It's yeah, a good you could idea. totally do it. You know, uh, Helen Mirren still kicks ass. Well, she, she's done. Yeah, she's done. <laughs> she that. did the red movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in any case, that that is a movie that, that, that I'll be curious to see how it does. I mean, the, I don't know exactly what theaters look like. I haven't seen the inside of a theater in, in a bit. And, and I don't know exactly when I will, but uh, presumably people are still around the country going to see some movies. I mean, Spider-Man did really well and it can't be the only one. So maybe it's they'll be virtually alive. the only one out there right now oh, yeah. uh, because they've been falling like flies. They've been canceling and pushing back and and taking movies out of out of the running. So it, it's uh, it's all it's all Spider-Man all the time. I think there's some figure like 70 percent of the box office at one point was Spider-Man. Um, anyway, okay. So uh, the last thing is Peter Bogdanovich. Unfortunately, we lost him this week. Uh, we both knew him a little bit. He had a, a blog on our site for a while called Bogdanovich. And of course, a lot of respect for him as both filmmaker and a critic and journalist. When did you first uh, encounter Peter? I mean, I'm sure his movies must have had an impact on you. Uh, like last picture show when it was I was good. very much a fan of 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 all his movies uh, when they were coming out you know what's up doc and and uh, and and the last picture show are come to mind of course um, but but I I really uh, was also a fan I, I worked on the movie terms of endearment and I got to meet Polly Platt 
who had mm. been married to him for a long time. And um, I was reminded when I was listening to the You Must Remember This podcast that Karina Longworth did uh, about Polly Platt, which was very well reported and had the advantage of her uh, memoir that was unpublished, that she was able to get an actress to to read um, a lot of the, the narration from the memoir. And, and there have been people who have been aware that Polly Platt had a lot to do with the success. She was a production designer, but she had a lot to do with the success of, of her husband's films uh, all as long as she, and she kept working on them even after they broke up, even after he went and got together with Sybil Shepherd uh, yeah, after the last picture show. So, um, because she was really, in, they were a married uh, filmmaker couple, really. Um, and so I always are, I always believed, uh, and Karina Longworth certainly does, uh, that Platt um, improved him and, and uh, made him better. And that after she was no longer collaborating with him, he wasn't as good. And well, he did he, go into decline. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, there is a, something kind of sad about that, seeing just how good those some of those movies were. I mean, my favorite of them is Paper Moon, which I actually just watched revisited a couple of weeks ago. It's just so charming and beautiful and well-performed. I mean, there's just so many levels where it's just like, that's just terrific filmmaking across the board. It just works. And uh, and you look at those movies and to not, to just suddenly not have that quality after a while, it's, it just feels like a, a really abrupt severance. So you, your theory does make sense that perhaps it's because of, of, of Polly Platt's absence. But I also but he think- he was also that, valuable as a film critic. Yes, and, that, that and is also who, an important part of the legacy. Who, you know, made a lot of, uh, gave a lot of attention to Orson Welles and John Ford and, and participated yeah, I in have about link, them. Um, all of his interviews with Wells on, on my bookshelf, a collection that he that he put together. And I, I do think like on some level, he helped keep Wells' legacy alive. I mean, their, their relationship was well documented crashed at the guy's house at one point in time and you know that he did help sort of keep wells the importance of wells in our culture totally yeah. very important as well as other directors like john ford i mean you know and it was a complicated relationship yeah and, and he, he interviewed a lot of directors from that earlier era before they died so it, it, he helped kind of bridge the gap between different eras of, of Hollywood through that through that work as well. So something to be to, to look up to. I think there is value in, in looking at that as well. So in any case, next week, I guess we'll see where we're at. I'm sure we'll be peering ahead to, to Sundance and there'll be much to discuss there. In, in addition yes, we should go through the lineup and, and talk about what some of the hot titles are and what we're looking forward to seeing. I'm certainly starting to get links and I'm excited about seeing some of the films. Bring on the links. All right, I'll see you soon, Anne.